0: Prepare your ears, humans. Happy, sad, confused begins now.
1: Today on Happy, Sad, Confused, Edward Norton returns to directing with his new film, Motherless Brooklyn. Hey guys, I'm Josh Harowitz. Welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. Yes, very pleased to say that the great Edward Norton, first-time guest... Unhappy, sad, confused is here today talking about his uh, latest passion project. He has written, directed, starring God knows what else, the uh, great new film, Motherless Brooklyn. It is out in theaters right now. But before we get into all of that, I should mention there's another human being in my office. It's Sammy. Hi, Sammy.
0: Hi. He's back two weeks in a row. I know, this is exciting. Springsteen, for me.
1: <laughs> Sammy, and Norton.
0: Ed. I, you said Edward, Edward like when you entered. I know, but. I didn't like in my head. I always say Ed Norton, well, so Ed, I don't know.
1: I think Ed Norton. I know you were a big Honeymooners fan growing up. Have you ever seen an episode of the Honeymooners? I'm familiar
0: with the concept okay, of well, Honeymoon.
1: There's a character on the Honeymooners called Ed Norton. So oh. when I hear Ed Norton, I think of the character from the Honeymooners. Did he
0: like in what did he call himself? Did he introduce himself like no, I'm Edward close or I'm Ed? don't
1: introduce themselves. To oh, each other.
0: I didn't realize you guys were close friends. Well, That's I, nice. I wouldn't say that,
1: but I, I will say it's interesting. I've I've talked to him a lot over the years. There was like a, a couple-year period, like ten years ago, where I was seeing, I would see him a, a lot. He was in a lot of independent films. Incredible Hulk was out, so I saw him a lot. And then he doesn't
0: work that much. You like, saw him like in friendly situations, no, not or like or, where, or, where he was being paid to be there, and you were being paid to be there, exactly, like transactional like friendship. Transactional. Got things. it. Got it.
1: But I'm saying so. There's a bit of a history there, and I, and I always worry that he, he, I felt like I was talking to him in the days of when. I had to ask him a lot about The Incredible Hulk. He wasn't happy. And that was a tense kind of situation Mm -hmm. it felt like at the time. So I was always worried he didn't love me or whatever. But I think we have a meeting of the minds now. He was in here for a long time. We chatted over an hour. Wow. Um, There was a lot to talk about. We talked a lot about his new film Motherless Brooklyn, which is based on a best-selling book from about 20 years back. Um, And it's an excellent new film. It's kind of a film noir set in the 50s. Uh, Edward is the lead... Edward is the lead character. He's surrounded by an amazing... Amazing cast of uh, actors he's assembled, including Bruce Willis and Willem Dafoe and Alec Baldwin, Bobby Cannavale, who's who of uh, New York actors. Um, And it's it's kind of in the Chinatown, La Confidential vein. Mm. uh, Very kind of an old school film that you don't see made anymore. Certainly not the kind of film you see on the big screen anymore. Um, so I, w- I would definitely recommend it. People should check it out, support it. Um, and as I said, it's a bit of a passion project for him. He's been working on and off on it for about nearly 20 years. So, Whoa. yeah,
0: that's so, major. So yeah, we
1: cover a lot in this one. And, uh, did
0: you cu- I bet you didn't even talk about my favorite oh God. Edward Norton movie.
1: What do you think it is? What, what is it?
0: Do you want to guess what my favorite Edward is, Norton movie is? It is Death of Smoochie? No. Although I don't hate that. I watched it again recently. It's pretty good. Yeah. Do you want to guess or no? Uh, everyone Says I Love You. Keeping the Faith. Oh, yeah. People,
1: that was his last directing effort. He directed that 20 oh, years
0: ago. Oh, God. What a classic. <laughs> I hope you went in depth we on Keeping the Faith. Wasn't mentioned. Well, this is this is why you need me <laughs> around. This is why you need your own podcast. <laughs> yeah, to get to what people really want. The KTF yeah. podcast. <laughs> we want to talk about rom-coms from 20 years ago. <laughs> Some
1: affection for keeping the faith. Yes, of course. Jenna Elfman, Ben Stiller.
0: Yes, it's
1: truly wonderful. Anyway, there's that. What else to talk about? Uh, oh, you know what's out this week? That what people should check out. What? Honey Boy, the new mm. uh, the Shia Labeouf movie. Yeah. Your
0: your greatest love. <laughs> I
1: wouldn't say my greatest, but I do. Shia is a lot of, up there for you. I have a lot of affection for Shia. I'm always rooting for him, and I'm so thankful that this movie is getting great reviews. He wrote it. He stars in it. It's his story. Uh, if it's playing near you, I heartily encourage you to check it out
0: if you heartily encourage it we gotta go well i'm just saying I, yeah. hopefully it's gonna be in the awards com- conversation
1: what else do you have coming up uh let's see oh other things you guys should check out i had a lovely chat with the cast of last christmas mm. amelia clark and
0: henry golding oh those are a couple of nice looking brits i guess whatever yeah you uh, don't notice that so. <laughs> nope, nope.
1: they put a blindfold on me before my <laughs> interviews now um, but they were very charming, very uh, a lot of fun. So that interview should be up on MTV News' various social platforms very soon. Uh, yeah, those are the big ones. Wait, who
0: did I just do for Momoa? personal space?
1: did. That's right, Jason Momoa for personal space. Aquaman. Uh, Aquaman. <laughs> <laughs> Ackerman. Uh, Ackerman. <laughs> um, that is the latest edition of Personal Space, which is kind of like my long-form chat uh, series for MTV News. That's up. Great chat with him at a, uh, his favorite guitar store.
0: Mm, which, Everyone
1: needs a favorite guitar store.
0: What's your favorite guitar store, Look, Josh? If you,
1: you watch Personal Space, which you clearly haven't, in the first <laughs> 10 seconds, it is revealed how I, I do not have any connection to guitars. So Or music in any way. I mean, I like music, all right.
0: Besides Springsteen, we talked
1: actually on this podcast. We talked a lot, a lot about uh, Springsteen.
0: You like you're going to mention it in every interview I or it. podcast. He brought it up. Wow, I don't know if I. <laughs> well, okay. Had the publicist <laughs> tell the publicist, <laughs> okay, I want if I have one request.
1: Nope, nope. Uh, what else to mention? Oh, there's going to be. A, I'm chatting uh, with the stars of Charlie's Angels soon. So guys, keep a lookout for my chat with. Uh, Kristen Stewart, Elizabeth Banks, Naomi Scott, and the other star of Charlie's Angels that I can't think of right now—it's <laughs> our first film, so I'm Mm-mm. excused.
0: You're, I excuse you.
1: Thank you. Look out for that. <laughs> Hopefully, it goes well. I haven't done it yet, but mm-hmm. if you never see it, well, that means I it did not go hope well. They don't
0: hear this first. <laughs> um, anything
1: else on your mind, Sammy? We should mention.
0: No, um, I'm pretty excited about Ed Norton. He, I, Edward, not well, we're friends. <laughs> Uh, I did walk by a couple times because you told me to come in here at a certain time, right. and it's now 40 minutes past that time. So I did walk by a couple times and noticed he was wearing nice shoes. So I didn't notice that. Yeah, that's why, again, this is why I'm here. Um, so I think based on that, it's probably going to be a really good chit-chat. That's how you judge? By the <laughs> yeah. shoes? Okay. Like this guy's got good head on his shoulders, good shoes on his feet. So you go from the top and the bottom, nothing in the middle. It doesn't matter. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you need. interesting young lady.
1: (laughs) Um, Everybody should check out Motherless Brooklyn, now out in theaters. And of course, remember to review, rate, and subscribe to Happy, Say Confused.
0: You gotta. You gotta. You gotta. You gotta. The holiday season's coming up.
1: It's the perfect podcast (laughs) for the holidays. I've always said that, guys. Um, Without any further ado, uh, here is Edward North. I was waiting to see what you were going to do. I said his name as it appears Edward. on his birth certificate I'm respectful that way <laughs> Norton what's your birth certificate say?
0: that's private
2: Antichrist. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's <laughs> Here's it's a Edwards. bunch of numbers here he is listen
2: okay Edward, tell me Lord, when we're starting
1: he, we're starting man it's oh. happening it's happening do you feel it happening? okay great okay Edward Norton has entered my office uh, it's good to see you man as always you too Motherless Brooklyn is the film. Uh, congratulations again. We, we chatted briefly in Toronto, but I'm thrilled that you made the time to have a, a longer chat about it today. Everybody should check this out. Um, I, I was talking when you came in, like you have been running around a lot. You've you've been you've been you know you're the greatest advocate for this
2: one as you should be. Are yeah, you? Yeah, I think. Uh, I mean, there's, you know, when you go really deep on one and you feel good about it, that's good. And also, but also, on you know. People, a lot of people really um, backed me on this. Not yeah. just like the people who put up millions in co-finance alongside Warner and not just like Warner that yes. took the kind of risk that people say studios never take anymore to make exactly these kinds of films, and they did. Yeah. But also like my cast, the cast of the movie on this movie from Bruce Willis on down all did the movie for no... You know, they deferred their fees on it so that we could get it done For the price, I had to get it done for. So, like, I just I have such a um, people people stepped up for me in such a big way, and I I you know I I want to get out there and get people to come see it.
1: Um, Well worth their time. It's it's now out in theaters. I mean, talk to me a little bit about. I'm curious. You know, you you know so many great filmmakers. You've worked with so many, and you're kind of like plugged in. I feel like to like the old guard, as it were. Do you show this film to, like, do you show this to Warren Beatty? Yeah. Sh- do you show this to Jack? I mean, who who's who's seen this? Um, and do any of them give you notes?
2: Not not notes. I mean, I showed it to Sean Penn the other night, and he wrote me about the nicest letter I've ever gotten from an actor about anything. Like, it was it was really great. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah. Well, one night, one night it was sort of inadvertent. I would. Um, Roman Coppola is a friend of mine because he writes with Wes right. Anderson on some of the films I've been in. And um, anyway, Francis was Francis was in L.A. and Roman had mentioned the film to him, and he was. Uh, it's the '50s in New York, which is when Francis sort of grew up here. Right. And so anyway, he wanted to see the film, so I scra- I found a really good screening room, and I was setting it up for for Francis and his wife and Roman and. Um, and then, then Warren Beatty was able to come, but then Dustin Hoffman came and, uh, Elliot Gould came wow, and, um, Quincy Jones came and Norman Lear and Roger Deakins, the great cinematographer. And suddenly it was like,
1: this is like a Vanity Fair spread. Yeah. Come it, no, life. it, it was, like, it was like, <laughs> it was like
2: the OGs, yeah. right? It, it was, it was sort of like, um, and that, and that was, uh, that was Exciting, nerve-wracking, gratifying. Um,
1: they must appreciate it on a number of levels, as you said, like Coppola, just that, that milieu. But also, as you know, the, this keeps being said, and it rightfully should be that this is the kind of movie that we all grew up with. The kind of movie that we don't see made that much no. anymore. So it must be all the more gratifying to see somebody continue the lineage that they grew up with.
2: I, I, yes, I think, um, and Warren, uh, Warren, they, I got really flattering feedback from. From Francis in particular, and and Elliot Gould, and um, but Warren Warren called me the next day, and and it was it's kind of thrilling because he he was like, look, I I really been he goes I admired it on just every level and blah blah. He goes, but I can't wrap my head around you doing this in forty six days, which is that's sort of like movie inside baseball, sure. but but you know for perspective. We shot Fight Club in 130 days right. and, um, and making this movie in 46 days was no mean feat. It was, um, I think most people looking at it sort of assumed that it was a 70 or 80 day shoot yeah. and, um, or a
1: 70 or $80 million movie. Yeah. Which
2: yeah. Not. And, and we, and, and, you know, in an era, I mean, I, uh, I hope I can get Netflix to give me 200 million to age my friends backward, <laughs> at some the point. Dream of any actor. Not I, who doesn't want? I, I told Bobby Cannavale, I gonna to Bobby we're gonna to get be- our turn. We're gonna get our turn, Bobby. Yep. You, you didn't get aged backward I'm in this turn one. Turn
1: you into a 12-year-old boy one yeah, day, Bobby. Yeah, but you and I—we
2: are—we're doing Stand By Me. <laughs> exactly. Don't think we're not, because we are. I mean, I would Marty's watch that. beta testing. Yeah. The technology. It's so
1: nice to beta test the stuff for you guys.
2: Yeah, but we're gonna we're going to do it, it and it's not going to look like young faces on 70 <laughs> year old bodies walking along. It's going to be, it's going to be good. I can't um, wait. uh, no, joking aside, I think, um, uh,
1: but yeah, you work within the constraints you're given. Yeah. And, yeah.
2: And, I, and I was, and I think, um, I think that, uh, it was great to, to feel like those guys, um, appreciating it. Um, I will say t- t- I'm nervous right now. I'm nervous because um tonight we're running it at the at the Directors Guild and um and uh oh, who's going? Spike Lee and uh Bruce Springsteen are both coming. So I'm I'm uh I'm flipping out a little bit because Bruce there are things in the film that actually are inspired by by there there's a specific music cue that I said to the great composer on the film Daniel Pemberton. I yeah. said I said listen to meeting across the river on, on born to run and that's the vibe I want in this queue a sense of like people going to a meeting yes. a dark meeting where they're over their head right. you know um, and I, I do I think Springsteen's that song meeting across the river is about as noiry yeah. um, as as you could get in, in a pop song um, with the lonely trumpet you know intro and and this sense of like hey tuck this gun in your pocket cuz we have to look like we we have to look like we're tougher than we are. Right. We're going up against people who yeah. are, you remember that line, yeah, you know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. you know, yeah. cause this, this guy don't dance and where it's right. been chast- passed, it's our last chance. And you know, it's like, it's like we, we have to go pretend we're, we're grown up and tough and can deal yeah. with this front. this. Yeah. Yeah. Front yeah, it. And, and that's, and that's like sort of when my character in, in this movie goes for the final big meeting at the pool with Alec Baldwin. Um, I really, I really wanted it to have that feeling oh, of like, awesome. of like I'm playing out of my depth, yep. but I'm gonna go kind of tilt with a giant and right. hope be, I don't get crushed. You know,
1: put, put yourself in the shoes of your mentor. What would your mentor do? Be that guy that you're yeah. supposed to be in the in the novel or yeah. in real life. Or yeah,
2: or... yeah, that's right. And um, and um, it and it it's funny because, uh, Bruce, you know, like long before MTV and the visualization of music, literally. You know, Bruce, Bruce I feel, um, I, don't, I don't even know if we knew each other at this point, but literally, I'm trying to think what year. So in, in 2007-ish mm. was the 30th anniversary of Darkness on the Edge of Town being released. Is that right. So at, and I was at Toronto for some reason. Yes. Maybe I was shooting The Hulk or something. I don't remember. Yes. But in the Toronto Film Festival... Yes, I think that's what it was. I think it was the summer or fall of 2007, and I was shooting the Hulk. Right. And and they they showed the documentary that they created about making *Darkness on the Edge of Town* because it was the 30th release. And right. because I was up there, they asked me if I would interview Bruce on on stage at, TI- at Tiff. So I yeah. I interviewed him, and we had this long conversation about. Um, about the effect of cinema on his music, like about how much noir films and Terry Malick films like Badlands, which is the opening track on Darkness on the Edge of Town is Badlands, literally, um, how how much they affected him in his young life and created a a sense of like landscapes. And I think, you know, Darkness, Darkness on the Edge of Town picks up literally where Born to Run leaves off with right. Meeting Across the River and becomes literally like a cinematic noir album. Those songs like, you know, Racing in the Streets and um, Darkness on the Edge of Town and, it's, you know, it's it's a very, very cinematic record. It is it is a record that feels like you're watching a dark, shadowy movie.
1: It, I'll say tell you, you why this is really funny. So literally on the podcast last week, I went... I, it's crazy for me to say this. I, I visited Springsteen in Colts Neck, and no. I talked to him about exactly what you're talking. No, about. No, come
2: on, really? Yeah, because oh he has God. this new film, West yeah, Star director which has some very noirish elements too, by the yeah. way.
1: Yeah, um, and our conversation was all about just the intersection of, of film and, and mm. music in his life, and it's all the stuff how Malick totally influenced him and John Ford, etc. So amazing. This is
2: a good twofer if you just listen to the Springsteen podcast. No, 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 podcast, that's great. That's, well, that, that's that's to me, you know. The thing that's beautiful in that, to me, is like, um, the you know, I think I. Whenever I bump into people who deny their influences, I don't trust them. If I feel like people are trying to like assert their originality, yeah, yeah,
1: cre- we're all mining what we.
2: Right were- then, then I'm sort of like, <laughs> what's your problem? What what it means is you're insecure, yes. right? Martin Scorsese, Spike Lee, Bruce Springsteen, the, greats, the best, the are David Bowie. They were the fastest to say, "Oh yeah, I, I'm just taking this and bending it through me." Applying, but it to they my own know, yeah, vision, yeah, but they yeah. know that bending it through me means it's something wholly original. Totally. You know what I mean? Like it's Bruce's narrative is the narrative of his places, but it's still affected by Roy Orbison and Terry Malick right. and all of these things. And Spike Lee will talk. You know for days about the films he's referencing and and i think but i think it's i always think it's beautiful it's like i mean i'm saying straight up like literally i'm saying in this music cue i want you to evoke dark you know uh uh, uh, meeting across the river or
1: but you're marrying it with the specificity of the situation or yeah and you're using a trope an emotion a feel and you're marrying it something else, and it becomes its own thing.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think um, it, it becomes its own thing. And in a funny way, I, I mean, I think there's real truth to the, to the um, you know, the, the the people who really think deeply on an uh, academically almost about stories and myths and the idea that we, you know, I don't know if it's Joseph Campbell or whoever says that there's really just there are a certain right. baseline stories. of stories. <laughs> yeah. And that we, we, we reskin them and tell them sure. over and over and over again because we need them to stay recognizable to the world we're living in. So it's right. like, we, we, I mean, honestly, when we did American History X, we talked about this overtly all the time. We were like, we're doing Othello we are actually doing a store, a Shakespearean story about a person brought down yeah. by rage, you know, or, or Macbeth, you know, like ambition. Right. Yeah. And when you're in high, when you're in school, they say, what is Macbeth's tragic flaw? Ambition. What is Othello's jealousy? Yeah. You know, um, what is Lear's pride? You know, it's, it's like, and we were like, well, what if you did a a big sort of epic, almost melodramatic tragedy, mm. but, but, what's going to make that resonate now for people. And it's like, well, anger, anger directed at the wrong people. And how does it destroy you more than the target of your anger? You know what I mean? And, and I think when you, but you have to do that because people have to be able to look at the world that's in a story and say, well, this is about me. You know, this is about me. This, this does actually apply to me. And I think to the point about Bruce, like, what is Bruce if not that if you I grew up in the route 95 corridor literally between yeah. Baltimore and New York route 95 that's the landscape of his his world and and you know it was like here's this persons yeah these are troubadour ballads these are these have Woody Guthrie in them these have Roy Orbison in them these have all kinds of stuff but they're describing the world we live in now they're describing like Highways and cars and semi-poverty and, you know, beach towns and all this stuff. And it's like, oh my God, he's writing about us. He's writing anthemic epic ballads about us. Yes. And by the way, Radiohead's doing the same thing, but theirs is in the context of of a, a digital age of information and the oppressive fracture of like you know, living in the modern world, right? right. right? But still, what? Longing, longing to get out, to have an alien come and take you away. You know what I mean?
1: So, okay, I want to backtrack a little bit just because it's a rare opportunity to have you for this kind of time and talk about a wide array of things. So- Okay, so uh, if you'll indulge me, you, you, you the, the infamous big break year, you're about 27 years old, you have this amazing, like, triumvirate of, of films that come out within a year, uh, Primal Fear, Everyone Says I Love You, People versus Larry Flint. Yeah,
2: those were, I made, that was, I feel like I was 25, I have, Maybe when you started. By yeah, time. when I was yeah. made, 25, 26 this summer that I made that stuff. I'm, yeah. cur- I'm curious
1: in the years prior to that. So you're in New York. You moved to New York after school, right? You're and So you're here. You're doing theater here. Were, the, were those years of, like, uncertainty? Or did you feel like you were on a path prior to the, quote, unquote, big breaks? Did it feel like you knew where you were headed? or No.
2: I, I mean, um, I knew what I was – I knew what I was uh, – Well, let me, if I'm strictly honest, I didn't move to New York with, with a clear embrace in my own head of what I wanted to do. Yeah. Like I, I didn't move to New York with a conscious thought of I'm moving to New York to be an actor at all. I, I, um, it took me a long time to ever even say out loud to people, that's what I'm doing. You know what I mean? I was, I was always moonlighting like I was never um I'm going to do something more important with my life than Well, I was or... Well, no. I mean, at one point I was um I you know, I literally uh I I I had wild and crazy ideas about things. I I I you know, on the conservative side, I like had friends who were going to law school and there was like an intellectual part of me that was turned on by that, not in a careerist sense, but my dad was a US attorney. He was, right. I, I grew up from when I was eight to when I was tw- seven to when I was like 12, my dad was a federal prosecutor. And I, I, I sat in the back of the courtroom with my mom and watched his bank robbery trials and big federal tax fraud trials. And right. and it was it was like, that was like the seventies in Baltimore. It was like the wire. Yeah. I mean, there are people my dad worked with in the US attorney's office who There are characters in The Wire literally based on them. Um, um, His trial partner was Kurt Schmoke, who became the first black mayor of Baltimore. And um, You know, to me, it wasn't like um, be a suit. It was like it looked like being a fighter pilot. I was like it it was like, um, you know, not even like L.A. law. It was more it was something I don't even know what it is in our current sort of pop culture, legal framework, because I don't even know if we've seen... It was like what pre-Baraja Bar- came, mm. came in New York, just like, holy cow, like the great, these great crusading, crusading public defenders, yes. Spitzer before he, you know, crashed out, yeah. and Eric Schneiderman before he crashed out, you know, just like, I know, <laughs> brutal. But, um, but I you know, so there was a, there was a part of me that, so, that sort of was like, there's a... Thought there was maybe something that was both smart and also... Um, high octane in that world mm. um but i was i was absolutely just dis- not interested in going to school again right at that time um i was interested in music i didn't play music well enough to like but i wrote i you know i was like i was obsessed with springsteen and with yeah. with um you know the chili peppers and and i i used to i i told flea one time we flea, literally flea and i were surfing Um, we've been friends a long, long time and he made some music. He, he plays the trumpet and bass on Tom York's track in this film. Right. But he, um, we've known each other a long time and he was like, when did we meet? And I was like, well, we met like, you know, at this place in LA, blah, blah. And he's like, yeah. I said, but you don't, you wouldn't know. But the real place. Yeah. You wouldn't know this. (laughs) But I, I was like, they played toads in new Haven, Mm -hmm. which is a, a bar club in new Haven. They played toads in 88 or 89. Maybe it was, it, was right, it was right when John Frusciante had joined the band. So John was 19. Wow. And I was, ni- I was 18 or 19 in college. And I went to see them uh, play t- Toads. I think, I want to say 89, but I can't remember when Mother's Milk came out. It was either right before Mother's Milk came out or John had just joined the band. I don't remember. Right. But this friend of mine from San Diego was, was into punk and funk and he knew. And we went to see them. and um, And I remember after, like they were hanging out at the bar and Flea, I saw Flea like chatting up this like uh, g- girl, a college girl, sure. you know what I mean? And I remember looking at them and going like all these thoughts I had about like, you know, cause I had liked like the DC punk scene and Springsteen and all these things and these kind of nascent little thoughts of like, wow, could, you know, could I ever like, you know, be a musician or whatever. And I remember seeing the Chili Peppers at this club and John was the same age as us and he was like hendrix like truly the kid that kid guy played guitar when he was 19 years old right. like a prodigy so this i mean like it was wasn't
1: encouraging moment. you no, saw was, oh wait no, there, no not i at see all. the gap No, now. And, I,
2: and also they were so i mean th- th- inked up and things and it was just like oh i this, is, this not is not a me. world i am yeah. i am so fucking square what am I even thinking? I'm wearing like a fleece and I, you know, like you do not get <laughs> need, into the chili peppers. The you do not get into fl- chili peppers wearing a fleece. <laughs> like, um, and, and they, and it was just like, and I, but I, I remember having this very distinct thought of like, how does a person even get to where they play music like John Fruscianti and Fleer playing it? At this age, right. like, how do you get to be doing that at our age? And what the hell world do you come from where you're you incarnating in the, yeah. like this whole vibe by this time? Because I felt so innocent. I was, I, it conveyed to me this sense of, like, an exotic life of outlaw adventure. <laughs> since they were five years old. Yeah, exactly. It was like, it was like yeah, these people have been getting tattoos since they were six, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> it's, right? It's time for
1: your first tattoo. You but what's really six. funny is, so I, started, I was
2: telling this, and Flea was like, he was like, that's so fucking weird. He goes, I remember... I remember talking to this girl and being like, "How's a person even fucking get into college at this age?" <laughs> so like, he goes, yeah, he was like, <laughs> he was like, "I remember thinking, like, God damn, like these girls are so fucking smart." Like, where, where did I uh, get that fleece? Yeah, <laughs> no, that I know was not being said. Flea in a fleece um, doesn't work. Probably still yeah. uh, it looks it a little weird. person Inle- to Unless it's the same pink color as his hair, like, and then it's like, okay, it kind and of works at least. No, but but it's like you. I do think like. Um, you know, like certain things probably I was like, I'm probably not going to be in punk rock. Like I'm not that authentically um, (laughs) whatever. And, but I I didn't know, I, I went to New York kind of with a vague idea of that it was like full of adventure and that it had a lot of, it had a lot of what I was interested in and I didn't really know what I wanted to do.
1: Do you remember the? So jumping ahead past you know theatrical success. I know association with Edward Albee was very important to you. And then these fil- these film successes. Is there like a welcome to the club moment where you feel like I belong here? Like is there like the like secret no. handshake at Nicholson's house where you're like? No oh. no
2: no. I mean that that's all much later in New York. I felt in New York. I thought I think everybody most people like are not Bob Dylan and, you know, anointed at the Newport festival when they're 20. Right. right? That just, that doesn't happen that often. And most people feel like their life is pretty half baked. Um, you're like, you're faking it. You don't know what the hell you're doing. You're, you're, you're drifting. You're looking for, you're looking for any finger hold of, of, that makes you feel good about yourself in any way. You know what I mean? And I think, um, you're, you're just, you're just, you're, you're, I hate to say it, but in a lot of ways in that time in life, like what a lot of people are going through, I think is realizing like that you're just going to have to do a lot of stuff that you don't like. Yeah. And that your life is going to be as much about humbling yourself and figuring out what you don't like doing so much that you're willing to quit. Exactly. Do you know what I mean? And, and my grandfather, who- attrition.
1: Oh wait, here's yeah, the thing left. Yeah. That I exactly. This. Have to do. Yeah.
2: Exactly. Exactly. And and my my granddad, who was a fairly uh, eccentric and cool guy, I remember him saying to me, just just don't chase money. Do the things you you like doing as much as you can, but but no, you're just going to spend time doing things, and when you realize this is not me and I don't like this, quit and move on and don't be afraid to, you know, unclip and not know what you're doing next and do it. And that, that did, that did stick with me. That like, Like that's
1: too short to go down these other paths for years at a time. Yeah. Pursue and then have enough self-awareness to know I'm not that good enough and I'm not that, I don't enjoy it enough to make it worthwhile.
2: (laughs) The the other thing that I would say in that period was, I think was an important um, permission that he, my granddad gave me and my parents gave me too, was that, but he, my grand, my, my dad was like a, you know, an environmental crusader and organization builder. My mom was a public school teacher. So they were like incredibly accomplished people in my mind, but they, they weren't like, they, they weren't like, they never chased money. Like they were very much like about service and mission driven work. And, um, and my grandfather paid for me and my siblings to go to college and everything. And so I, I felt this, I admired him a lot. And I felt this, he was very famous, um, in his own way for his urban development work and, uh, affordable housing work and all this stuff. And I sort of felt like when I got out of college, I, I, so many people in my family were doing what I would call really like heroic work to make the world a better place. And I sort of felt like part of me was like this little voice in my head that's like, I want to be an actor. I felt a little bit um, like I had to, you know, like, oh, that's not, that's not why they paid for me to go college, you know? And I talked to my grandfather about it the week after I got out of school. And, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I might want to do this. And he was kind of like, don't, you know, don't he, he was like, no, but yeah, yeah, no, he don't. was like, do, do he, and he was like, I'm 67 years old. I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing after a lifetime of trying to do well right. I, before doing good. He's like, I'm doing good now. Right. But he, he said something to me like, you will, if you get good at a thing and you figure out what you love doing, you will figure out the way that you can be contributive through it, but don't, don't, you know, don't he was like... Don't put up on yourself yeah.
1: about pursuing what makes you happy.
2: Yeah, don't, he he kind of was also saying don't martyr yourself, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, don't, you don't have to martyr yourself. You don't have to martyr the idea of doing things that that you're passionate about to the to the idea exclusively mm-hmm. of giving your life to public service or yeah. anything like that. He was, he was like, there's room and time to be very contributive once you figure out, like, what you're good at.
1: And it seems like, you. I mean, like anybody that looks at your filmography and wonders like, wait, why is he not doing three films a year? That has, there are artistic sides to that of like, not wanting to like, you know, inundate an audience with too much of you, but it's also of like, balancing these other efforts. I mean, I've, I've interviewed you where you're sitting next to a Maasai warrior and mm-hmm. you're
2: running the marathon. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah you know, that's true. Uh, we did that. I forgot that. Yeah. So,
1: I mean, like you found the balance. I mean, and and, and after if your output on the acting side maybe has decreased, you've kind of supplemented it with these other things that fulfill you in different ways. Yeah, um, yeah,
2: I, I, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that actors are better for acting more frequently. I really don't. Um, I think that that, that, uh, you start to get into what I would call, like, um, you're, you're, you're functioning more within, the movie star uh commodity yeah. kind of uh, frame and and I, I I just don't think anyone whose work I've liked in any f- you know Bowie or Bob Dylan or Radiohead or springsteen or anything yeah I don't, I don't i don't I don't feel like they're like they're not dro- they're not dropping albums once a year
1: did um what was your first meeting like with Fincher did you guys click immediately um,
2: yeah. But I, it's funny to me. I, I'm really trying to remember how we met. Was it first on Fight Club? You think? Or yeah, no, definitely. I'd never met him. I was, I was like super, super astonished by Seven, and then the game. I, I, um, yeah. I thought I couldn't even really wrap my head around what was going on. That was having, but literally, like in retrospect, I remember thinking there's such a, con- there's so much incredible control. There's like, there's like a virtuosity to yeah. the, the float and the movement of these films visually. They look so, um, they just, I just thought they were really masterful. It's funny masterful visual compositions. Um, the cut image to image to image was just like, it, it had a, an incredible sophistication and maturity and certitude um, like the, certitude the, the is nothing, a great word yeah
1: yeah and yet there's this anarchic spirit underneath yeah. all of it yeah. th- a sense of yeah a sense like, of
2: chaos a sense of 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 doom like looming yeah like danger in the in the in the best sense um dread yeah. you know and and um they were they were great so i i i was a fan but uh I I think, honestly, I think that I got word that they wanted to send me this book and script. Mm. And I feel like maybe, I feel like maybe we talked briefly on the phone and he said, um, you know, read the, read the book first. Right. And, you know, and that I did. And, and then my recollection is that we talked on the phone again, but I feel like. I want to say that I think maybe we met at the newsroom cafe on mm-hmm. Robertson yeah. where the old new line was Yeah. because maybe because he'd done the uh, uh, seven with new line, I seven don't oh, new line or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. I feel like maybe I met him at the newsroom cafe.
1: Did you immediately, I mean, I've interviewed him a few times and I, 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 I acknowledge how lucky I am because he doesn't do a lot of press, but I did a thing with him recently for Hunter, and... I'm just always struck by like how funny he is. He's so funny. Yeah. Like he has, but like, that, the dark... well,
2: the thing I do remember is that the first real conversation I had with him was about the book and there was a little like, get to know you kind of thing. But I basically remember saying it's really funny. Like, but you, you want it to be funny. Right. And he was like, and he goes, yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> like, like right. he kind of looked at me like, duh, yeah. like dude, you know, <laughs> We're not like, doing it.' yeah, We're not he's, like, for he's the... like, he's like, he's like, um, he and I kind of feel like my the delight of the first time I met him was realizing that he was sort of like, dude, you don't think I take myself seriously, do you? <laughs> so you, you don't, you know, you, um, which of course he does, but but his vibe was so irreverent, yeah, um, so irreverent and so, you know, s- self, um, you know, self-mocking and yes. and mocking of everybody else, and you know, I mean, like nobody's ever called actors meat puppets with more <laughs> affection. You know what I mean? It's like nobody. Only Fincher can. Um, oh, he's my favorite. Yeah, like game. he's yes. like um, uh, you know, he gave me the best note I've ever gotten as from a director. Uh, What's that? Because I was I was running along in in the wingtips and the underwear and something, and it, I probably did something that was like a little borderline, like John Turturro in Miller's crossing or something, you know, like, like, like a little bit, yeah, a little, little, little bit Harold Lloyd. Anyway, he, he just walks up. He, he kind of comes over to me and he goes, he goes, I'm thinking a little less Jerry, a little more Dean, you know? And I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's it. Um, that's the movie. Like it's, it's, it's just toggling between those two things. Um, And, and he's, he's just very, he's very, you know, he's super crazy, technically talented, but he's, but he's got a great, um, annoyingly great feel for a line reading. Uh, he's a very sardonic, very funny dude. And, um,
1: and yet you've only worked together once. Has there been, have you come close on anything else?
2: Um, no, I mean, I literally, I, I've. I check in with Fincher and get advice from him or bounce things off of him yeah. with, like, regularity. I, I I don't think I've ever done anything I creatively uh, and not asked him for... For a gut check. Yeah, the, a yeah. gut check on certain things. And he's super generous with with counsel, with discussion of technical yeah. stuff. He's the always the guy you want to call if you're saying, like, hey... Am I crazy is there degeneration between th- this and the transfer to this and how do I mitigate that you know I mean if you want to know like That's a good Hey how do I call? not yes. let someone else botch the hard work we've done what are my checklist of must-dos he's the guy yeah. like the guy to call about any such thing
1: uh, So on the flip side of a different kind of a person the Brando that you met and got to know on the score was it, a, it's, it seems to me like a Brando that was kind of like maybe, I don't know, you, you tell me, but disillusioned with acting a little bit, kind of over the business, overacting. Was it, was it heartening or disheartening to sort of see what his attitude was about?
2: No, I, I don't actually think that. I think that he probably, I think that phase was a long way in the past and that he was, when I knew him, he was honestly um, at such an advanced age in life that I think he had long ago let go of even his own, you know, resistance to it. Got it. I, I think he was in a very... Um, a little bit more of a Zen place. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, no, entirely. I think he, I think other things in life had buffeted him so hard that, um, that, that he was actually quite, he was in a, a very gentle place of it's a gig and I'm, you know, and uh, it's a gig. And he, Bobby, as he calls De Niro, like, you know, as getting to do it with him. And he, he and I knew each other. I think it was, I think he was in a, um, he knew he was with friends, he was relaxed. I found him to be um, actually, I actually didn't like later as I often don't, the
1: the narrative that was created. Right? Yeah, the, yeah, the
2: clickbait horseshit that like people were taking his pants off, being crazy. It's like, what are you talking about? Like the guy was an old old man, yeah. and he was hot, and he was aware that he was going to sweat through his suit. And when he checked in to see if the lens size was cropping him, he yeah. thought I should take my pants off yeah. so that I don't oversweat my suit. It's like it was like conscientious. It was like knowing it was like unself-conscious not not nutty yeah. like not even eccentric like really practical you know what i mean and oh you know he's he he doesn't even learn his lines he's, stuff. Yeah, he yeah. was nearly 80 years old and he wore the he used this ear uh, mic system and what happened was like three takes in he would into his microphone he would say anya i i got it oh. you know and and then he was there and it just it actually was an accelerator and in many cases bob who i love took much longer to get to his own kind of right. just comfortable just relationship happen happen with in the text so. that Marlon was. Marlon <laughs> yeah. was, Marlon was fluid and effective and improvisational. And, um, and in fact, I thought that in some cases the the things that people ended up saying caused friction between him and the director and everything. Right. I was like, I was like, Marlon was just, ex- he was exploring a variation on the character that honestly was it was maybe just not what was being expected because he was he was playing with um trying to elevate the material a little bit, a little. And actually to be totally candid, I thought what he was doing was exploring kind of a, a, a an a closeted homosexuality in the character that maybe was in love with De Niro a little bit. Oh yeah, there's a fine to that character. Yeah, but, yeah. And, and a little bit of a Truman Capote yep. in see it. That. Um and and that and that maybe you know, people who were thinking, oh, we're making a tough guy heist movie and we want Brando and De Niro and... And, and it's sort of like... It's like, well, that's fine, but what he's doing is actually super interesting. Yeah. And everybody was tightening up. You know what I mean? And I think... Um, I, I thought it was... I thought it was sweet. Like, honestly, I thought it was very... Um, I was a little bit aggrieved at seeing... The- seeing the imposition around him of the idea that what he was doing was kooky or that yeah. he was being things. I didn't feel that at all. I th- no less
1: than one of our, like arguably our greatest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it,
2: it, but, but you know, something within that is something I think, cre- you know, the, the speed with which in a creative process, people will tighten up around the idea that they've had in their head People have videotape in their head of the way things are going to go. And they often go on tilt when what shows up and what happens doesn't match that videotape. And you can see that in, I see it when people come up and interrupt you at dinner. You know, there are people who come up and say, in this super grounded down in their shoes way, they look at you like a human being and they just say, you know, I, I don't want to interrupt. I just wanted sure. to say that this meant something. And you say, and you look at them in the eyes and you say, thank you so much. That really means a lot. And they go, thanks so much. And they're like, human, perfect. human, perfect. And there are people who come up and you can see from the minute they step up to you, they are now trying to enact a videotape that they've been running in their head of the way a thing is going to go. And they are not even looking at you. They're looking at a mirror or they're, it's so disconnected But the creative expression of that is that, and by the way, Fincher used to tell me like, he was the best as well-planned and prepped a director as you'll ever meet. But he was always like, you plan, but you be prepared to deal with what is actually going on on the day. That is the nature of the gig. And you can hedge it and hedge it, but there's gonna be something that you just gotta roll with. And and I think the sad thing is, is when there's incredible discovery available within that unexpected and people tighten up around it instead. And, and I think um, there's famous stories of that with Brando and even Marie Saint and the glove, one of the most famous like improvisational moments of acting lore. But you know, when I was making motherless Brooklyn uh, I'm directing actors that are, are, have been career inspirations for me, like Willem Dafoe. Right. And Willem, we did a we in the scene where we're in the Washington Square Park at a protest, and then I follow him down the path in Washington Square Park in the late afternoon sun, and yeah. and I'm questioning him, and and it's a long tra- shot where he's talking and talking, and it's he's disgorging this huge amount of text, this kind of furious diatribe, right? Right. And Willem's been practicing it because uh, he's been walking up and down in the park. And if like you ever wanted to like come in New York, no one noticed like Willem Dafoe is going up and down <laughs> it's, practicing it's his Tuesday, lines yeah. and no one noticed. Like <laughs> they're like a crazy guy is muttering to himself or they're just going, oh, Willem Dafoe. I love him in the Worcester group. Um, <laughs> That's
1: about what I expect Willem Dafoe to be doing. Yeah, exactly.
2: <laughs> but anyway, we get we get toward the end of the we're getting toward it. And the truth is, I've run out of time for this stuff with Willem. I've spent too much time doing other stuff and the light is falling, and it's that classic thing where you're looking at the time yeah. and the amount that he's supposed to do and that we're supposed to do, and I went into a tightness. I, I My mind starts going, I'm not doing this to Willem Dafoe. I'm not gonna be that director, that actor who goes, sorry, Willem, we just have to really hurry, and we have to do this in a couple of takes on a Steadicam and everything, and, and I almost raised my hand and was like, sorry, guys, we're just gonna have to come back to this, but then... I literally looked at my first CD and he was kind of like, uh, just reminding you, like, we are never coming back to Washington Square Park with 300 that extras. Never, we don't have the yeah. money. This is it. And I kind of go to Willem and he looks at me like, yeah, let's, let's go. Let's go. Like, and I realize, I have one of those moments of like, why am I tightening up? He's not tightening up. He's like pressure. of The moment feeds into the thing. Yeah. What do we have to lose? It's not even film anymore. Let's yeah. just rock. You know what I mean? And we we kind of get going, and we're shooting really fast and really gorilla with a steady cam and these things. And he's firing, and when he messes it up, he's like, "Let's just go back." He's running back and doing these things, and we end up. I absolutely love that scene in yeah. the movie. He's tr- terrific in it, and the tension, the pressure of what of what was around us, gives it you feel momentum, it. It, it feels it in it. And I later, I was like. Because you always want to be. I've been doing this 25 years. You always. You, I know these stories. I know these things. But you go. Why did my? Why did I tighten up? Why did my mind go, go? Why did I go into like lockdown instead of like, instead of like?
1: Let's have fun. Let's with this do class. it. Let's yeah. have fun. You know what
2: I mean? And granted, I, I think th- that's why Willem like an invaluable part. He's looking at me like it's. You got it. We're good. Like let's yeah. go. You know? And that's collaboration. That's wonderful. But it is amazing to me how the sometimes the the mind, the, the, the desire in the mind to control yeah. like fires in you and you go you you, you can actually become your own worst enemy. Yeah. No matter how long you've done a thing, you can you can the the training, the the constant mental training to like allow allow shit to happen is it it, it you, you never really you never really get past the need to kind of s- s- conscientiously put yourself into an openness. You know what I mean? Yeah.
1: He was just, yeah, well, and came by again a few weeks ago and he's one of those guys. I feel like I could talk about
2: acting with like
1: endlessly. He just like lives to act. And what I love about him is he seems to like, he, it's not like he has one way of doing it. He will work with any kind of director and kind of mm-hmm. adapt to their I agree. Process. No, I agree. He's,
2: he's truly like a, a versatile, he, he he has got incredible versatility. Yeah. Also, but by the way, it's part of why I wanted him in this is the character he plays in this seems a little like a crank in the beginning, like a conspiracy theorist, yeah. very much an outsider, doesn't fit, is untrustworthy. Yeah. And and but, but by the end, you realize that he's actually sort of like Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's, mm-hmm. He is the Jedi in rags. Right who really does know what's going on and is himself very powerful with the force. Like literally he, he and, and except like Obi-Wan, he's, he's the one who has sacrificed yes. himself. pariah, that's kind of. Yeah, yeah, but, but he, he has actually cared so much about other people and about goodness and morality that he, he is the one going down, yeah. you know, to Darth Vader's sword to protect others and, and Willem, but Willem, Stra- you know, there's not a lot of people who have that straddle, who have that. That sort of thing that can disturb you a little, but then that deep humanity, you know. And um, and I think Alec Baldwin has that in his own a different thing. Like I wanted someone who has a lethal capacity for charm and persuasion and intellectual like seductiveness, and then also like the 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 gene of a real bully, like a real genuine the guy that can that you terrifyingly know, yes. intimidating. Um,
1: you use his powers as well as I've seen them in, in recent years. Alex, like, because, you know, I, I, when he did it on 30 Rock, he's a genius at that kind of stuff he is, too. He is, yeah. But I haven't seen him in, like, a big screen role like this in a while. It's no, I, I think
2: it's one of the best dramatic performances he's given in a long time. Like, yeah. I think, I mean, which never, a lot of us, I. you know, when I was sitting around the winter before I had this all together and I was talking to Bennett Miller and... Uh, you know people who are uh, really great directors friends of mine and i was sort of like what about you know i i think like and and this part i was saying like what about so and so and 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 people other people were like what why are you even debating this it's so right obviously <laughs> alec like and you know and and y- 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 you realize the rest of the culture will say stupid stuff to you like oh but he's already yeah. so kind you know it's like it's like, no, Strip man, we... that
1: baggage for a second. No, like, Glengarry Glen Ross, yeah.
2: Coffee is for Closers Only. Like, it's yeah. an iconic thing, not because it's a great line, but because he slams you into the back of your seat. Yeah. Um, and he has that... He also has a theater actor, a Shakespearean actor's command of language that in this film gets just full-throated. You know, you you really get to see him open up into sixth gear in terms yeah. of the his the mastery he has of language. He, he is so, there are so few people who could do the dark monologue he has in the pool at the end and drive through it as a single dark, cohesive thought. You know what I mean? He really, he really has, um, a a gift for language and elocution. That's, that's pretty, pretty unique. You know,
1: one thing I want to mention before, uh, I release you out into the wild, sir, is, uh a. I didn't realize you're interested in test, the test screening process. Can you explain to me a little bit sort of like, so you have a, you're have you part of a company that does test screenings? like And does that, is that born out of experience, bad experiences with test
2: screenings for your own oh. films? Well, so no, I my company, it's called EDO, um, which stands for Entertainment Data Oracle. But we, we um, it's a little bit of a long story, but my partner, the guy I founded that company with, is a very, very... Uh, He's a leading theoretical technologist in terms of data science and okay. quantitative um, using machine learning and artificial intelligence applications of of complex data. I was a backer of his company called Kensho that that yeah. that was a um, it became one of the leading um, companies using AI on financial data. Okay and and then we we had rec- we realized i persuaded him that there was there were things within media data that were very very um, applicable that, that that there was that the baseline the baseline of data science in media data and in things like measuring the effectiveness of advertising yeah. was stone age compared yeah, to, to the things they, they were doing so yeah so yeah. for instance nielsen this gets a little business wonky, but Nielsen's the the biggest media data company in the world. Right. And essentially what they have is a (laughs) 70-year-old metric for measuring things, which is notionally, by having set-top boxes, how many people saw something as an extrapolation off of how many people watched it out of our little data set. Right. But if, if you were doing, like, brain surgery in you know, 70 years ago, you used very different tools than you would use now and you sure. wouldn't want brain surgery done on you 70 years ago. Let's give it the
1: old college try with the old stuff. It'll yeah, work.
2: exactly. <laughs> and I think that, and I think that, um, we have so much more capacity now to understand without, without invading privacy or anything with, with things like search data, um, which are very, very difficult to monitor in a moment to moment basis unless you use the most advanced right machine learning, uh, if you don't use the capacities that we have now through machine learning and artificial intelligence to, to, to analyze massive amounts of data at incredible rates.
1: Right. As opposed to a, a box at the end of a movie where you write very good. Well, no, poor. so that's, that's getting <laughs> what you're talking I'm about. is am applying movie stuff. Our, okay.
2: The main game stuff we do is that, you know, basically Nielsen was how many people saw something. What we do primarily is that all the big networks and all the big television advertising buyers from Toyota to Warner Brothers, they use our data to look at how we put a television ad out, not how many people watched that program and therefore how many people saw our ad, but when we actually dropped the ad, how many people... Not only searched related to that ad, but searched in specific ways that actually indicate what they responded, what so they responded they to, and do they intend to purchase? And there are, there are, if we what we do actually lines up with the financial outcomes that people see, and so, huh. so it's like it's like seeing on a cellular level as opposed to looking at a body. Yeah. You know, it's like, are we? is what we're doing literally making people do what we want them to do, not how many people saw it. And that's worth a hundred X in terms of the insight that it gives someone who's selling ads on a program or buying ads. And, and that gets, that's the main of what we do on the side, on the side, we, we, we almost got annoyed. We just realized that, that, Honestly, I got so fed up with the notion that in 2019 we're still doing one of our most important market research things on creative content, we're putting it in front of an audience and then we're putting a piece of paper and a pencil in their hands and asking them to fill out a pencil and paper survey that has to be tallied that you know, you can't do any kind of data yeah. science on it's because It's the hanging it, chads of it's uh, 2000. <laughs> ridic- it's, it's so ridiculous that it's laughable. Yeah. And so because we have like some of the best engineers in the world, we just like as an afterthought, we built a tablet based audience survey s- platform and software that does literally in less than 100 seconds what took an hour right. um, and and ends up generating very sophisticated audience reaction reports like really really fast and blah 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 that that is that is honestly it's a it's a um it was a side project to the bulk of what we do but we do now we do about a third we we do over a third of all the hollywood film test screenings now and Pretty much nobody who's done that is ever going to go back to using a pencil and paper. Yeah, it's it's laughable. It reminds Um,
1: me of like I think of like polling data just around elections and stuff. It's like wait, they only poll people that have landlines that can respond. Yeah, and it's like of course that's why our polling data. Yeah, yeah, you you
2: you you, there. You know, people. We're in a really wild era because there's 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 lots of legitimate concerns about data. There's lots of overhype about it, but on the other hand. That's sort of like a skit. The truth is, is that the magnitude of what's possible now—that th- was fuzzy. You know, it's it's possible to have clarity about yes, things that were fuzzy before, as well as we, yeah. and they are legitimately good. Like it's sort of like saying, to me, there's like you know people have gripes about ride sharing, right? right? They have gripes about there's this and that, and the way our drivers employees they get benefits. Like these are all very legitimate and necessary conversations, right? right. But I think people lose sight of what the baseline was before that. The taxi system was not, (laughs) is not like, it's not like an apples to apples things. It was a cartel in New York, mostly managed by, uh, a lot of times by mobsters, literally, as we learned from the president's ex-lawyer, you know, and, and B, it was like. It was the most insanely anti-humanist, like, treatment of drivers ever. Like, these people, you know, no one owned their cabs. Right. They were $200 in the hole when they got into the cab.
1: Yeah, this black market for the medallions. Like, yeah, label. the dri-
2: driving, <laughs> driving like a bat out of hell, yeah. horrible service, because they literally are driving themselves out of debt every time they get in the car. They yeah. can't do less than a 12-hour shift. They have no equity in the cab that they drive. It's just the worst. So the passenger, and on top of it all, baseline, of thirty thousand cars driving around empty, looking for people standing in the rain with their kid crying, trying to find one. This is the definition of a waste of human time. Right. And and the idea of through data and software marrying up supply and demand, it's like it's like such a no-brainer. The idea that we're even having a conversation about whether that is better than the old system is ludicrous. Right. That's You can have all kinds of conversations, but you can't have a conversation about whether it's better than the, what there was before. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, and in truth, if they really wanted to clean up congestion, what they'd do is say, nothing makes any sense except data-based, platform-based ride-sharing, and we should just stop the medallion system and take all those taxis off the road. Like, that That would make much more sense. But I think that... I think that it's like the, the the legitimate the legitimate concerns within the realms of data can't mask the fact that we're transforming the world. And by the way, this applies to conservation. And tre- we understand like where we should plant trees because of data. We understand. You know, it's like you can't you can't like discount knowledge. And part of the part of the the da- you you know people it's sort of what my film is about in a way you can't, you don't want power to amass where it's not supposed to be. And like this, this toothy conversation now, you know, I think like, I think like to me, I'm like Jack Dorsey responded the right way. And Mark Zuckerberg responded the wrong fucking way (laughs) in a big way. It's like, you, it's like, you do not, you know, like, like, this is not a nation that you own. It's a company. It exists. It is is licensed by fiat from the population, the citizens of the United States. You fucking owe this country your service and your loyalty and, or, or we should fucking delist you. You know what I mean? And, and it's like, if you can't open your mouth and say, I care about the impact, you got to you got a problem, like a big problem. And you are entering into the zone of Nietzschean will to power, literally like you, you, you are viewing yourself and this thing you've built and it's financial maximization as a greater priority than the common good. And that is not fucking acceptable. And it's like, and, 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 and those are like important conversations, you know? And I think you, the people in the United States should get loud and get toothy, when people are, are hijacking what we call our system, you know what I mean? And I think um, the... the, the um, but you know, you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater and there's an enormous amount of good that's been realized through technology and data and all these things. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of incredible opportunity for that to continue to get smarter and better and like make the world a better place but right. you you've got to hold people to account that, that for, are not using it in the right way Yeah, for how they yeah. deploy it. You know what I mean? Um so I bet I bet when you
1: walked in here today you weren't expecting an hour long conversation not even to deal with death to Smoochie at all.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was admiring your discipline. That's the next yeah. hour we're going to cover.
1: Mm-hmm. Um but Honestly, I've, I always enjoy chatting with you. It, it had been a while since I caught up with you in Toronto, and I'm glad we had a chance to get into some stuff yep. a little bit more in depth today.
2: Yep. Uh, congratulations on the film, man! Everybody, should Thanks. check it out. Yeah, it's it's um it's just out. So, um, no, it, we, it, yeah, it's, yeah we, it's one of those things where it's like if you see it, you appreciate it. So just get into the theater. Yeah, just see I think it. I think <laughs> look. Well, I think that I think I'll end on this. I mean, I think that um, it's funny because we. <laughs> it's sort of where my character gets in the end of the movie. It's like his own daily D- Tom York song in the film is called daily battles. And it's, it's like, he's, he's dealing with a rather unique kind of daily battle yeah. with his Tourette syndrome and stuff like that. But it, it, by the end, it's like, she challenges him and sort of says like, everybody's got something you got to decide if you're, if that's, if you're going to permit yourself apathy, just because you struggle like everybody else. And I think, by the end he's like, knows he's got to get off his ass and, and, um, get into the, the into the fight, I think. (laughs) But I think that, um, in a funny way, we, we all want, we all say we want like good art. We all say we want like great music and, and movies that make us think. And we don't all want like
1: the fluff, a a fast food burger and Xanax in,
2: in a blender. There's plenty of that and it's enjoyable. No, and it's, it's its own thing. But if, but I do think it's, it is sort of that, like, what do you get off the couch for? You know what I mean? And I think if you, if it's, it's good to, it's good to push yourself into the unknown. It's like, it's good to, it's good to go off into films that, because I, I don't agree with everything that Scorsese said about the because I think it's actually I think the landscape of what's happening is full of incredible opportunity for young people. Sure. I think I think diverse voices are getting more opportunity than ever in the history of filmed entertainment, right? Of course, yeah. And that's just a, a full stop positive. And there's lots of young people who don't have the same relationship to like movies in a theatrical setting mm-hmm. that we've had growing up, right? And so you can't you can't like sort of I don't think you can like bemoan the collapse of like society it, it's it's not it's not the it's end kind of the of world exactly. it's, it's also not it's the end of the world yeah. it's 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 a change it's change but um and young filmmakers shouldn't feel like they're stepping into um a world of diminished opportunity because it's that's just not true at the same time what I what I think what is very true in one of the things he said is that in the the corporate matrix that wants like stability of cash flow, literally, like wants like franchisee type stuff that can make very big returns very quick, right? And and that has produced a system where, you know, the churn is so fast that the you know films, even when we were growing up, like there were films that if they if they had a vibe, they would stay in the theater for a long time for an audience to get to them. You yeah. know what I mean? And 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 I remember, I was just talking to like a great producer about the era of like The Graduate. Now that's going back to our parents. But it played for 16 months. Yeah. You know what I mean? And a whole generation found got to come and find it, right? Um, and I think... Two or three weeks. Yeah. And, out, and, yeah. And, so, and so even on this film, we literally have been trying to do something a little unorthodox, which is not try to like spend money in a way that feels good but is just going to blow apart any chance of ever getting making this make tell. financial yeah. sense we made the movie really cheap we're we're trying to be really really disciplined and know that like adult audiences are like loving the movie Ken Burns's essay oh, yeah, yeah, is that. is really it it encapsulates a lot of the reaction that we're getting from grown-up audiences they're really appreciating this it as a fine meal in a way but you, but you do have to fight to keep it, literally keep it out there for people to see. And and in a weird way, you've got to say to people, "Hey, g- get up and go, go!" Like if we want these things, when we see one or we hear about one, if it has the people that we go, "Hey, like th- this person never lets me down." I'm g-, then then get up and go because because otherwise the that window is just going to compress and compress and compress, and and right. soon. I do think he's right. There's the chance that it just will become too tiring. It'll be too much of an uphill battle about to put yeah. films like this one that I've made. The sun will go down on those being in a theatrical configuration. And I do, and I do think there's something special about that. I do think there's something still really wonderful about seeing things yeah. in that go setting with, with, other world, people, another, laugh, yes. with other people, laugh with other people, feel it, get transported. And I think... Um, I, I hope that we can still like like motivate people to sort of like we're talking about in the film just like go yeah I want to I want to be I want to I, I want to get out for these things because I, I want to see them yeah. you know what I mean
1: there you go guys the future of adults <laughs> smart filmmaking is on
2: you now <laughs> <laughs> it's up I, to you it, if, um, yeah you have no one to blame but yourself <laughs> and I will blame you yeah. I will blame you
1: I'm with Edward uh, it's good to see you buddy Thanks. thanks again